Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Minnerly Soriano was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 17, 1986 to Louis Soriano Duran and Minerva Cepeda. She went by the nickname Minnie and grew up in the Pelham Parkway section of the Bronx. She was described as a bubbly, straight-A student who loved playing hopscotch and volleyball with her friends and dreamed of becoming an astronaut one day. She also enjoyed writing poetry, reading novels, and roller skating. However, she was quiet and reserved around people she didn't know. At 13, she was still living in the Bronx and was a 7th grader at Frank D. Whelan Middle School. On February 25, 1999, she was last seen leaving school on Wallace Avenue to meet her younger sister, Nadia, at a nearby elementary school. She usually shared that walk with her close friend, Kimberly Ortiz, but on this particular day, Kimberly decided not to walk with her, a decision that would haunt her for the rest of her life. Minnie would never arrive at her sister's school and was never seen alive again. With Minnie nowhere to be found, her seven-year-old sister had to take the bus to East Chester Road and make the walk to their apartment alone. When Nadia arrived home without Minnie, her parents were immediately concerned because Minnie was highly responsible and protective of her younger sister and would have never purposely failed to meet up with her. They returned to the school to search for her and checked several other places. Finally, with no sign of Minnie, they notified the police. A few days later, a homeless man going through the trash noticed that one black trash bag was much heavier than the rest. He tore it open and was shocked at what he saw. He found Minnie's body bound and wrapped inside a garbage bag dumped inside a dumpster. The dumpster was located behind the Hollywood Video Store on Bartow Avenue in the Co-op City section of New York City. He threw in the garbage in the dumpster como she was a garbage. She was a garbage. She was a human being. She had been strangled and sexually assaulted and left discarded like trash two miles from her home. Her red ski jacket and black backpack were never recovered, and the case would go cold for over two decades. Minnie's mother and stepfather, Ray Robles, who had been in Minnie's life since she was a small child, did not attend her wake or funeral, presumably due to profound grief. However, those in attendance struggled to understand why they chose not to attend. The odd lack of attendance was a red flag of their possible involvement in her death. Neighbors described her family situation as less than ideal. 
They noticed she was made to care for her younger sister, perform all daily chores, and go out late at night alone to a local 24-hour store a few blocks away to buy things for her parents. The area she was forced to walk through was not a safe area for a young girl alone. Years later, in 2019, investigators applied for a familial genetic search. Soon after, preserved semen found on her sweatshirt was used to create a DNA profile. The sample was then run through CODIS and linked to the suspect's deceased father. The suspect was Joseph Martinez, and investigators were able to obtain a sample of his DNA and match it to the semen found on her clothing. He was then arrested in November 2021, 22 years after the horrific crime, and charged with two counts of second-degree murder. His arrest would shock the community, who thought very highly of him. Martinez was a self-proclaimed street astronomer known by locals as Jupiter Joe for his work on subway platforms and sidewalks in the Bronx and New Rochelle area. He taught astronomy to children and passerbys using a telescope as part of Jupiter Joe's sidewalk astronomy. He lived in New Rochelle in the same area as many. Police interviewed Martinez in 1999 after her murder. At the time, he told authorities he had seen Minnie getting mail in the lobby and selling candy door-to-door -door with her sister. However, he was never on law enforcement's radar. This was the first case in New York City that was solved using familial DNA. Martinez's attorney claims his client is innocent because he is a 49-year-old man with no criminal history. Although this case isn't officially solved and Martinez is innocent until proven guilty, court dates continue to be pushed back, which is super frustrating to her loved ones, but DNA doesn't lie and some consider the case closed. Maureen Brubaker Farley was born on July 4, 1954, to parents Marianne and David Brubaker and was the eldest of seven children. Her mother described her as very outgoing and friendly, but a bit of a wild child, often sneaking out and using a fake ID. She began asking permission at age 15 to marry her boyfriend, David Farley. Despite her parents' advice not to marry yet, Maureen and David eloped and married when she was 16, and she threatened to run away if her parents had it annulled. Soon after getting married, David was arrested and sent to prison nearly five hours away in Anamosa State Penitentiary, and it was rumored to be for burglary. Maureen moved over four hours away to Cedar Rapids to be closer to David and visit him in prison. Once she arrived in Cedar Rapids, she got a job as a waitress at Weta's Restaurant at 836 First Avenue Northeast. She rented a room nearby at 522 10th Street Southeast and often sent photos back home to her parents and six siblings. On September 17, 1971, 17-year-old Maureen borrowed money for cigarettes because she was out of money, but her paycheck was ready and she had plans to pick it up later. However, she never arrived to pick it up and never showed up for her shift at Weta's restaurant. Her co-workers found this very odd because Maureen never missed work. Her boss reported her missing three days later after her co-workers went to her room and saw her car but couldn't find her anywhere. 
So a couple of Maureen's siblings hitchhiked to Cedar Rapids to search for their sister. Seven days later, 14-year-old Danny Lineweaver and 15-year-old Kevin Coppus were out hunting. After crossing the river, they discovered a woman's body near a landfill, which is now Tate Cummins Park in Cedar Rapids. The body was on top of the trunk of an old abandoned car in a wooded ravine off Eli Road Southwest. They initially thought she was sleeping and went about their way. But on their way back, they noticed the body had not moved, so they returned to tell one of the boy's mothers who didn't believe them and went to see for herself. She then called the police, and the body was later determined to be Maureen's. The medical examiner ruled that Maureen didn't die the day she went missing and had only died two to four days before being discovered. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma that caused a skull fracture. It was determined that she possibly lived, although unconscious, for at least a couple of days before she succumbed to her injuries. She had been sexually assaulted and killed elsewhere, then tossed on the abandoned 59 Chevy in the woods. She was barefoot and her feet were spotless, and a pillowcase had landed on a branch above her head, likely coming from the original crime scene. Her husband, parents, six siblings, and everyone who loved her were devastated. Law enforcement suspected a 53-year-old local man named George Smith was her killer and searched his home for evidence. He visited 17-year-old Maureen often at work and became enthralled with her, constantly flirting and trying to gain her trust. He even offered to pay for an attorney to get her husband out of prison sooner. But at the time, there was no hard evidence to connect him to her murder. Either way, her killer's DNA was collected and preserved from the crime scene, and her case would go unsolved for the next 50 years. Meanwhile, her younger sister, Lisa Schenzel, who was only four when her sister was killed, decided to become a law enforcement officer. Her goal was to help others going through the same thing she and her family had gone through. She also wanted to keep Maureen's name in people's minds, resulting in her cold case being reopened years later. In 2006, using advancements in DNA, a profile was created of the suspect's DNA and used to eliminate multiple people. However, there were no matches in CODIS. Then in October of 2021, the Cedar Rapids Police Department Cold Case Unit announced they had identified and confirmed the person responsible for Maureen's murder, George M. Smith. The case was closed with no prosecution because Smith died in 2013 at 94. So, with a search warrant, the unrelenting investigator, Matt Denlinger, collected DNA from one of Smith's children to compare to the DNA from the rape kit, and it was a match. Not only had Smith often visited the diner where Maureen worked, he also operated a hauling service, which could have placed him at the site where the body was found. He also reportedly worked at a liquor store next to Maureen's apartment. According to reports, Smith had gone to the police department multiple times to ask about progress in the homicide investigation. Maureen's mother had always believed Smith was responsible and wrote to the police about suspicions six months after her daughter's body was found. He was interviewed in 1971 and declined a polygraph test, but no evidence could connect him at the time with the lack of technology. 
Maureen's 86-year-old mother, Mary Ann, and her four surviving siblings were notified that the person they were told was responsible for Maureen's murder five decades earlier was indeed the right man. But unfortunately, he lived as a free man to the old age of 94 and was likely the suspect in other similar crimes. Hopefully, Maureen's family can now find some relief in finally knowing the truth. Fawn Marie Cox was born in 1973 to parents Beverly and John Cox. At 16, she was a junior at Northeast High School in Kansas City, Missouri, working as a cashier at Worlds of Fun Amusement Park. On July 26, 1989, Fawn worked until 11 p.m. and went straight to bed when she got home. The Cox family home was located near East 9th Street and Van Brunt Boulevard in Kansas City. The next morning, her alarm clock was going off, and her sister, Felisa Cox, went to wake her up. As she shook her sister, she quickly realized Fawn was dead. Strangely, she had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death during the night while her family members slept. Her family says they did not hear anything that night because the air conditioner was too loud. However, Felisa does remember that the family dog was acting agitated that evening, which they had attributed to the dog being pregnant. The police speculated that someone entered their home through a window and came to her upstairs bedroom. This led them to believe that Fawn knew her killer. A month after the murder, a supposed key witness would provide a statement leading to an arrest. Three teenagers were charged for her murder and one was held for eight months before DNA testing came back inconclusive and he was released. Ultimately, the witness recanted the statement and the charges against the juveniles were dropped. Sadly, with no other leads, the case would go unsolved for the next three decades. Fawn's sister, Amber, was so traumatized by the case that she ended up in the hospital because she became so obsessed and overwhelmed by it. In the early 2000s, the killer's DNA was uploaded into CODIS, but there were no matches. Fawn's family fought for years to get genealogical DNA testing used on the case. They even held fundraisers and offered to foot the bill because the Kansas City Police could not afford the cost. Ultimately, the FBI paid for the testing once Operation Legend came to Kansas City and provided resources in 2020. The killer's DNA profile was created and entered into open ancestry websites. A genetic genealogist built a reverse family tree and soon gave detectives the name of a concise list of potential suspects to investigate, leading to the identification of her killer but the name would shock the Cox family. It was determined that the killer was Donald Cox Jr., Vaughn's older cousin. Unfortunately, justice would not be genuinely served as he died in 2006. Initially, his death was considered suspicious, so his blood sample was retained. However, it turned out that his death resulted from an overdose. That blood sample matched the blood and semen preserved from Fawn's bedroom in 1989. This was the first case to be solved by the Kansas City Police Department using forensic genetic genealogy. The family had suspected the cousin over the years and wondered if he could have been responsible. 
They fought hard for answers over the years, and while the closure has provided some relief, the truth is not always comforting. Alicia Diani Stancil was born on March 13, 1994, premature and addicted to drugs from her mother, Tony Stancil. Tony was an Air Force veteran turned prostitute with a horrible drug addiction. On December 19, 1994, when Alicia was nine months old, her mother asked an acquaintance named Dee to look after her at the Greenway Motor Hotel at 1208 West Van Buren Street in Phoenix, Arizona. She reportedly said she needed to clear her head and would return soon. It would be a few days before she returned, but when she did, the baby and Dee were gone. Soon after, Tony went to jail and waited three months to report her baby missing in March 1995 while behind bars. She claimed she left Alicia in the care of an African-American female known only as Dee. Without any further information about Dee, the police didn't know where to look. Then tragically, a few months later, Tony was murdered, the only witness and person with valuable information. Decades later, her homicide still remains unsolved. Fast forward to 2014, a young woman showed up disoriented in a hospital in Connecticut without any ID or family information. In addition, she knew very little about herself. Nevertheless, the nurse was determined to find answers and check the missing person database where she saw an age progression image of a girl similar to the age and appearance of the patient. It seemed to be a match, so police were notified and her DNA was collected for testing. Three years later, they found a match and confirmed the woman was actually Alicia Diani Stancil, who went missing 20 years earlier. It turns out that Alicia had been passed from person to person those few days that Tony left her in the care of Dee at only nine months old. Someone then turned Alicia over to the police who didn't know who the baby was. In turn, she was entered into the CPS system and placed into foster care. Unfortunately, because of the time difference between when Alicia was turned over to the police and when she was reported missing, the police never put two and two together. In 2008, an age progression image was created of what the unknown girl may look like at age 14. Alicia would be 24 years old before she would learn her true identity. She had been adopted at a young age and was given a new name as it was unknown what her birth name was. She asked for privacy and said she was happy to find out who she was. However, no further details are available about her life and upbringing. Still, I wish we could get some answers like, why did it take three years for DNA results? What made the nurse determined to find out answers? What was her life like growing up? And why was she allowed to go with her mother right away after being born addicted to drugs? Since finding out her real identity, Alicia has met her grandmother, Frances Ford of Georgia, who said her granddaughter's life has been complicated and confusing, and she hopes one day they will have a relationship. Mary Frances Romsik Pryor was born on August 4, 1908, in Czechoslovakia, and came to the U.S. when she was eight years old. 
1951, she married Leonard Pryor, and the couple never had any children. The couple initially lived in Flint, Michigan, where they owned a candy business called Sweet Marie's before moving to Lennon, Michigan. In 1992, Mary would become a widow after Leonard passed away. At the age of 88, Mary was well-known and beloved in the village of Lennon. She was described as the sweetest, kindest, and humorous lady. During her 15 years living in Lennon, she was known to talk and joke with neighbors as she walked her dog, Poopsie. She went to Mass six days a week and walked with Poopsie almost daily to the former Lennon Cafe to get half a sandwich and a cup of soup for lunch and dinner. On February 27, 1997, her brother-in-law, James Pryor, went to pick her up for Mass at St. Mary's Church in Swartz Creek. He found her door open and her dog inside, but no Mary. At that point, he drove to the church to see if she had caught a ride with someone else. When he couldn't find her, he notified the police. Two hours later, a trooper and canine officer spotted her body over 100 yards away from her home. She was lying in a swampy, wooded area near Linden Road and East M13, wrapped in a blanket. Drag marks showed that she had been dragged from her home and sexually assaulted. She had been beaten, suffocated, and left for dead. DNA was collected from her body and preserved for future testing. That DNA would lead to the arrest of 41-year-old Michael Burr that lived within blocks of Mary's house. 24 years later, Burr was arrested and charged with murder, criminal sexual conduct in the first degree, and kidnapping. Burr was 17 and in the 11th grade, and a neighbor of Mary at the time of the murder. He appeared on law enforcement's radar in 2004 when a witness came forward with information. Sheriff Chris Watson approached him at work and questioned him about his alleged involvement in her murder, but he was uncooperative. Mary's sister lived to be 98 and passed away before seeing an arrest in her sister's murder. Now that Burr is behind bars, hopefully Mary can now rest in peace. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.